Hey, there we go. Hey everybody, Ken Rimple and Sujar Kapadia here. Uh, we have brought a guest to the show today, Deshaun Carter. Say hello. Hello, hello from Kansas City. Oh, that's where you are. Cool. Yes. Uh, Kansas City, Missouri or Kansas City, Kansas? And Missouri by the way, side. okay, is there one that is like, no, this is a Kansas City, do both cities say the same thing? No, no, no. I, I think both <laughs> cities try to make sure to say, you know, Kansas City, Kansas or Kansas City, Missouri. I think when we're talking with folks, even here, we're like, yeah, mm -hmm. we're, we're, where are you at? And I'm outside of Kansas City. I'm in one of the suburbs called Grain Valley, mm -hmm. but I say Kansas City. I claim cool. Kansas City. There's multiple Philadelphia's <laughs> as well. Yes. Yeah, it's true. Philadelphia, Mississippi. And I don't know where the other ones are, but yeah. Well, that's it. At any rate, thank you very much for being here. Uh, you, we had a great time when you came out and spoke at Philly Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise. Your Philly ETE shirt is showing that. Yes. Um, wonderful talk. And if anyone is interested, we'll post the link to that right here, which is uh, my, I will never let my children deploy active passive. My children will never deploy active passive. That's just <laughs> the way it is. They can do all sorts of stuff. They can get all sorts of trouble, but that's not one of the things they're going to do. Is they're going active active. Is it just that they're too young to know to do the wrong thing? Because that's what the kids will always you, do you the don't wrong let them, thing. Right? It's like brush your teeth, active, active. Like, <laughs> it, it all depends on what you're going to – what are you going to teach them? If it's my child, she'd probably like start up a bunch of nodes and there will be a bunch of zombie processes. Like she'll forget about them. They'll just keep running until they keel over. Yeah, I mean – and that happens too, right? There's a lot of things that we've, we've put into production. And the difference is if you were doing active-passive, it might fall over and not come back up. But if we're deploying active path, active active, then they're just going to be up. That that talk really hit home for me because my first, I would say, real large like distributed computing um, thing, and I was working for a defense contractor, Lockheed, at the time many years ago, um, and I was very proud of this. And at the time, it felt like it was state of the art, but it was active passive with you know database replication and then some uh, Cisco Global Site Selector changing oh, yeah. DNS and choosing the failover version and then making the standby active. And I was like, this is awesome. This is great. Yeah. And the whole, like, one of the things that I said was it's about money for me, right? If you're doing active passive, you've got all of the infrastructure someplace else. And maybe in your case, maybe it's in more than one place, but it's not being used. And just that, that hurt. That, that was pain to me. So, yeah. It's not necessarily like that active active is better. You know, you can still have your different levels of resiliency and, and the gap and hello, Simon, glad to see you. And you have these different options, but the active active approach allowed me to use all the resources that I was paying for. Exactly. And in, you know, that, that startup mindset, you know, maybe it's a cultural thing. I didn't like wasting money. So let me, let me use it. And I felt like I had more confidence. I had better resiliency and we, we kind of showed it so it was fun and it, today in 2023 it's actually pretty easy to do some of these advanced architectures using spring spring cloud and kubernetes or you know the example we did was uh, azure spring apps for enterprise it just it makes it super simple there wasn't a whole lot to it so i want to ask you a question just to kind of level set the people who are watching this who may not know you already how okay. did you get involved in Spring in general? <laughs> Besides, like, if, if you're like me, it's been a while, right? But uh... been around for a long time. Uh, I remember the conversation. I I, I started my career. Um, I started doing Java in the '90s. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it really took off with Java uh, 1.2. But then I got into my career, 1999, the the dot com boom, and, and I was doing e-commerce apps, uh, a lot of JSP, uh, 0.98 spec, 0.98 a spec, uh, you know, is what I was using and I was taking it to production cause it worked. Um, but I remember coming out of this EJB space and doing a lot of stuff with EJBs to Craig Comstock introduced me to spring. He's like, no, yeah. Have you ever thought about it this way? It makes it really easy, but I was all, kind of overwhelmed and, and I had all of this luggage, this uh, scar tissue and, and experience with EJBs. So I was like, mm, I got it. Like, I understand how to do EJBs. I don't need that spring stuff. And then we started using spring and I was like, how is this so easy? 
why was I doing all of that stuff with the EJBs and all the, the mess and the configuration uh, when I could do it this way? So that was, it was Craig Comstock that gave me the introduction. Uh, and that might've been 2003, 2004. That was very early. Uh, yeah, yeah it, was, it was super early. Mm -hmm. uh, and he kind of put it on the radar. We started using it. Uh, I think I was taking things to production in 2005. Uh, and, and then it kind of, it shifted. I, I got away from it a little bit and then I, it was always there. There was always yeah. something that I was deploying, you know, with the spring configs. Uh, but really it got exciting in 2010, 2013, you know, in that time frame. Um, I was doing a lot of comparisons with different frameworks and how to take things to production. Uh, time mattered, response mattered, um, the ease of operation mattered. And yeah, and when Spring Boot came along, when I finally uncovered it, uh, I was doing a comparison with Spring Boot and uh, Drop Wizard, right? I, I knew that I, I needed some of these 12-factor type things, these uh, production-ready type features. Uh, and I, I did for a long time. I was doing this head-to-head -head battle, like, hey, is this easy? And I was looking at it in a way that it's not just about what goes to production, but it's about how easy I could get people to consume it. Because at the time, I had teams, I had people on my team that were all over the world. And yeah, and Spring Boot checked the box, and it got me excited uh, for multiple reasons. And uh, yeah, and that's really where it took off. Uh, I I got excited about it. I dug deep. It, it gave me some freedom to do more things on my laptop because it had Spring Boot had the Tomcat application included. So I was able to kind of shift between projects on my, at the time, eight gig laptop. And that made it exciting. And my personal laptop, that was my eight gig work laptop. And my personal mm -hmm. one only had four gigs, but I could still do stuff with Spring Boot on this four gig laptop. So I was super excited. And then it just kind of took off from there. So now, you... yeah. yeah, now I'm, I, I got excited about Spring Boot. I went and I did some things at a, a startup and it was all spring, uh, spring-based. Then we kind of added on some .NET, some steel toe, uh, so we could kind of have the same patterns and take it to the same platform. We were using uh, DCOS at first, and then we kind of shifted over to uh, Cloud Boundary, and we had lots of success. So I was, I was happy. I was doing these cool things. I felt like we were able to keep up with all the releases that were happening, and I was, I was just a happy customer. So I, I called up a couple folks and I said, hey, I'd like to, to do more. And I ended up working at Pivotal where they were taking care of Spring. Uh, and at that time I was, uh, I was a platform architect. So I was working with all sorts of customers all over. And, but I was still enjoying it. And then I went and spent a little bit of time over at Redis and then I came back. So now I'm back uh, at VMware as a Spring developer advocate, just sharing the love and getting to work with customers all over the world awesome. and help them enjoy i my first year my goal was to find one person that was half as excited as i was in 2015 because i was i was not just drinking the kool-aid i was making the kool-aid like man you guys gotta try this this is so great and if i could just find one and i really i did uh i realized that i did when i was at uh, vmware explorer in barcelona vmware explorer in san francisco the people were definitely there. I had great conversations, lots of folks that kind of understood. They had that like one foot in the app dev side, but also they had a foot in the, let's make sure that it's running in production side. And that's kind of where I like to sit, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just about, I don't really go deep on the language. I'll be you know honest. I care about getting things to production. I care about having things run, being able to be resilient. Um, but like the language features, all the awesome language features that have been added to Java over the last couple of years. Um, yeah, they kind of went over my head. The things that get me excited are how much faster the JVM is these days, uh, how much easier it is to get a Spring Boot app into production these days. The Spring team has done amazing things. And then the, the native stuff. Uh, I started playing with the native stuff early. And I've got Raspberry Pis sitting here in my office where I'm deploying Spring bring workloads to these Raspberry Pi devices, ARM64, with 512 megs of RAM on the device. And I'm running Spring Cloud, Spring Boot workloads. And it it's wow. still exciting and it still blows my mind that that's even possible. 
using Grawl, I'm assuming, for that, correct? Yeah, that's one of the features that was, uh, it went GA with Spring Boot 3, Spring Framework 6, is this ability to do ahead-of-time processing, AOT processing mm -hmm. with Grawl VM. So the Spring team and the Grawl VM team worked really close to, yeah, help make it possible. And that's one of the big features. It's the one that, that has me the most excited about Spring Boot 3 and, and 3.1 now is, yeah, being able to deliver native images with Spring Boot apps. So that's a good point. So let's let's talk a bit about that. So you got 3.1.0 of Spring Boot. Again, yep. that's one of the big topics of Spring Boot 3. What are some of the other really cool things that you see coming out of Spring that are kind of making you really excited for what it's where it's going? So that's that's the big one. That's the one where I spend a lot of time. So mm -hmm. the native images, just the the power that we're getting, we're getting a lot of additional features along the way. And the thing about the Spring ecosystem is every week, just about, there's a new project that's coming out with a new release, right? The Spring team isn't massive. You know, there's there's a limited number of people that are working on it, but they're all working on different parts of the ecosystem and they're all releasing new stuff. And that release process, it really kind of all boils down to the Spring framework. Right, that's the underpinning. That's the the base framework for all the other projects, and it's Spring Framework gets a release, then Spring Boot gets a release, then Spring Cloud gets a release, and then the other projects kind of they have uh, dependencies. So upstream gets a release, and then the others kind of come after that. So the nice thing is there's always something new. There's always a new feature, and a lot of times I find myself questioning myself like hey am i going down the right path if something becomes too difficult for me like well how would i do this i take a step back and i'm like i can't be the first one who's ever <laughs> tried to do this thing let me go and ask and now i'm in a, a really fortunate and unique position where when i don't have the answers i have slack and i can reach out to people that have done it and i can get the answers like hey here's the fast way to do that here's the the, the better way to do what you're trying to do so it's been it's been amazing. I've gotten to learn all these things and and I'm constantly trying to kind of map it to what I did in the past, right? It's, it is 2023 and I still have scars from, you know, having to rack servers in the data center. And a lot of the developers today, they don't realize how good they have it. No. Like all of no. these things that the spring team, just, just focusing on the spring team and what they've done for me. Every time there's a new release, I look back and like, man, I wish I had that in in 2014 man i wish i had that in 2018 because it's so amazing that they are at the front of this and i've really come to learn that those engineers on the spring team they care about what you want uh, i was at spring io a few weeks ago and to see the way that they are engaging like hey we're working on this cool thing what do you think before they ever go to production, they're asking like, what do you think about this? Would this be valuable? So that they know where to spend their time. And I'm just blown away by how much they care about what the community is doing and how they decide what to work on. It seems sometimes like it's, oh, it's just magic. And oh yeah, somebody had an idea and they did. No, there's tons of research that goes into it. There's tons of work that goes into every decision that they make. And it literally, it blows my mind how they do it so well and that that team is spread out all over the world. So yeah, I get giddy over these kind of things, not just the, the product that they're putting out, but also that the way that they're delivering the product, right? We went, we recently had this pandemic. The spring team has been remote since day one. Yeah. So right. that, you know, there is a lot of things that I was kind of looking towards how the spring team is handling things to realize like, Hey, how should we do this here? You know, how should this org be doing it? What are they doing that's different than the spring team? Because they've had some success and not every team is like the spring team. But yeah, they, they, they've set some really amazing examples. They're doing some really amazing things. The, the first time I used Spring Boot, it was amazing. I was like, oh my God, Spring gets it. They care about all the thousands and thousands of enterprise developers out there that didn't really have access to modern architectures, modern tooling. And yeah. you know, unless it was under the guise of Spring or Java, it was very hard for developers within, let's say, larger stodgier organizations to make a case for introducing something. But because it was under Spring, it was a much easier sell. And they were able to bring all these people into that modern fold. I mean, it's had a huge impact. Yeah. And 
the the way it's it's open source. So yeah, right. I've been lucky enough to work with orgs and you know I've I've done some things the wrong way and, you know and I've been kind of the the developer oh I know what's right and this is gonna be amazing and I've done my own thing. Sure. Um, but I also I've been been lucky to sit with some amazing engineers and one of the the changes that that yeah it was, it was a pivotal change for me was watching a, an engineer at a customer at the time. Uh, they were using the Spring Framework, and they were running into an issue. Like, oh, this doesn't behave the way I expected it to behave. And I just, I watched as they said, hey, are we on the latest version? Okay, we're on the latest version. Let's go look at the notes. Is there any issue that's open related to this? Okay, there was no issue related to this. So they started writing their issue. Like, and this is all in the matter of like 10 minutes. They're like, oh, well, here's what I saw. Here's what I expected. Eh, it's probably around this spot in the code. They opened up the source code of the library that they were using from the spring team. They opened it up and they go, yeah, I think it might be related to this. And they created the ticket and then they opened an IDE. They pulled down the project and they said, oh, I know where the problem. And they started fixing it, started fixing it and made a PR all within 10, maybe it was 30 minutes, we'll say. They went from, That's hey, I nice. found an issue. I ran into an issue. I created an issue. Hey, here's what I expected. Here's what I got. Here's my output. Here's uh, an example. And then they opened up the source code and they created a PR for the issue. And I, I still get excited when a PR that I submitted, when that gets accepted and that gets merged into something, anything, I still get excited about that. I still have like giddy feelings. And I know that there's five PRs out there today that I'm waiting for somebody to, to do <laughs> and accept on. So that's a great, that's a, a dopamine kind of like hit that's like a, a great feeling to be in and i know that this is happening across the spring ecosystem but to see that customer at the time go through those steps it changed the way i looked at software development it changed the way i looked at open source and being a good uh, citizen of the open source community it was that day and that was in 2018 and uh and i've ever since that's kind of the the mindset so it had been spring, you know, that was kind of the, the bulk of what I was doing. But in 2020 uh, and the beginning of 2021, I had delivered PRs in a bunch of different languages. Uh, I think there was five where I was like, hey, yeah, it's OK. You know, I can figure my way out and I can figure things out when you've done things for a while. You kind of figure out, hey, where could I go look? It might take a while, um, but I was excited about delivering PRs in a bunch of different languages. But I was also kind of like I'd already had my favorite, right? That was this mm -hmm. spring stuff and moving. I got excited about the spring shell uh, and the CLI and combined with the native uh, image processing, I was able to do some really interesting things without a lot of mess, without a lot of hardware. And I started taking all of these Python, Ruby, Bash uh, projects that I had, and I started converting them to spring shell CLIs. So I was using the framework that I loved and I, I knew all my cheat codes and I had my, my patterns. So it didn't take me long to convert them over. So now I've got a collection that's mostly spring so that, you know, if I want to maintain it, if I want to push out a new release, it's okay. I'm comfortable pushing out a new release. Five, 10 years ago, I had repositories with 10 or 15 different languages in them. So to maintain that one that I did in uh, PowerShell uh, five years ago, to maintain that, uh, there's kind of like, I had to go through the kind of learning curve again. Uh, I got to upgrade all the versions again. And that was kind of a, a pain. So now I don't have that. I don't have the, the learning curve or the, the mind context. I don't have to remember how the language difference uh, makes it easier. So I'm in a much happier place. Now that I have all these tools that I can not just deliver, but I can deliver on Raspberry Pi, like Raspberry Pis. I like to show off my Raspberry Pis. Raspberry Pis. Like I can Kubernetes cluster on this Raspberry Pi and it can be all spring apps. And now we've got the, the gateway API so I can do even more stuff with spring. And it's just exciting that I don't have to change my comfort zone in order to deliver enterprise grade workloads on hobby grade products 
hobby grade, hobby grade hardware. And it's wonderful. It's fun time to be a developer. So there is a comment I want to bring up. Uh, Simon Verhoeven uh, has been commenting. And uh, one of the things he said was he enjoys the, the ease of development and setup. One has to love the new test container dev mode. And oh, yeah. that's what I was clicking on and I hit a video. <laughs> like, yes. oh, no. But uh, I was looking at uh, just briefly, this looks really powerful. So um, this is a new feature that came out with 3.1. Uh, and the, the whole idea is if I'm using Redis or I'm using MySQL or MariaDB, I have these test containers. And what a test container does is it'll start up in a container my database. So I don't have to install Postgres or Redis on my laptop. If I use test containers and it starts up really, really fast because in the container, I can start up a container. I can deploy a schema. I can deploy some data and have that. And it used to be just for like, integration tests or end to end tests where you use test containers. But now we want to have kind of a better developer experience. And Oleg Shayev, he kind of showed me first, uh, it was a couple of months ago, how you could have like a, a running instance without a whole lot of configuration that would automatically start up the containers that you need. So we've all probably seen a repository that has a, a Docker compose file in it, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, hey, yeah, that makes sense. Hey, you want to run against your backing services. Hey, here's a Docker Compose, run the backing services, and then start your Spring Boot app. And that makes sense. And it, it did make sense. But it's still another thing that I needed to add to my repositories. And I got really excited when I saw Oleg's demo, where he was in his test loop, local development, run that application, and it was pulling up a Redis and a Postgres, for example, automatically. No Docker Compose. He's just using these test containers that were defined in his test sources and he was able to run it locally so as you're making wow. changes it's automatically able to run against a backing service and that's it's a whole new experience for developers josh Long does a really good demo of how this works he did one at spring io take a look at that if you get a chance it's it's a brave new world where we don't even have to have a docker compose we can literally check out a repository wow. and maven spring boot run and you're good to go or you can start it and have it automatically redeploy every time you're making changes and re-up in your IDE using the Spring Boot DevTools. So the experience today, right? Think back when you had you didn't have even Docker. Think back when we were installing uh, Oracle and WebLogic on our desktop, and we didn't have four gig machines back then. We had two. Four gig, maybe if you're lucky, but we had a bunch of stuff that we had to run locally to do any work. So we've come so far in a few years to where now we can do a bunch of this stuff and I don't even have any of it. I don't have anything other than my IDE installed. And I can have this great developer experience with all the backing services, all the application server because it's built into my Spring Boot all the backing services that I connect to because they're available as test containers. And that same workload is going to go work in production the exact same way. I just grabbed a, uh, let me see if I can get this one here. Um, Beck, I don't know. Can you share my screen? There we go. So I just grabbed a random, just to give people an idea, a little flavor for this. Um, found a, a, a blog post that was talking about this. So like just spinning up a PostgreSQL container and a Kafka container just by annotating a service connection and kicking off a particular, looks like it's a particular container uh, from there. That's pretty wild. It's, it's, it's amazing. Wow. It's amazing. And there's no Docker Compose. That's very if, There's no Docker Compose. If you have a Docker Compose but want to do this, is there something I can slurp it in? It'll automatically recognize your Docker Compose and slurp it in. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yes. Wild. All right. Well, anyway, so I'll, we'll yeah. post that particular link as, as one of the examples in the, in the show notes. Um, but yeah. that's very cool. All right. So that's a big deal right there. It is. Um, and so now talking uh, about like the native support, right? So you've been doing Graal VM compiling. Spring Boot has the ability for it to go through and kind of play through with the AOP and so, yeah. AOT and such. So, so what are you seeing there? Let's talk a little bit about that. All right. So... I get, I get excited about this. So, <laughs> no, uh, you don't. <laughs> if we've been around Spring for a while, um, a lot of folks have already migrated to some Spring Boot 2.x. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of folks have already migrated to 3.x, and they're able to stay current. But depending on the size of your organization, depending on 
those applications where they live, sometimes there's ones that kind of slip through the cracks. Hey, it's not broke. Let's not fix it. And I, I really get excited. I want to help people migrate to the latest and greatest. And this is kind of what it looks like. Hey, you're running Spring Boot 2 and you want to go to 3. Well, with Spring Boot 3, we rebase. Like you have to get up to Java 17 first. So new image. So you cannot take your Spring Boot 2.5 and just automatically upgrade. The first thing you have to do is upgrade to Java 17. The nice thing about that is, is as you upgrade to Java 17, you're going to get a bunch of performance improvement. The JVM, the improvements with the JVM have been absolutely amazing. One thing, I'm going to step back now. One thing that I encourage everybody to do is take a look at how you're doing garbage collection. You have a bunch of options. So even on your, your Java 8 workloads, Java 11 workloads, take a look. Did you choose the right garbage collection? It doesn't take a lot of time. Run a test. Change the garbage collection. Run another test. Just to make sure that you're, you're not missing out on some value. The same thing comes with the JVM. Like, take some time. A lot of organizations say, yep, we're all in on this version of the JVM, and then everything gets it. When some JVMs might, out of the box, be better for some use cases. But just take the time. Do a test. There's lots of open source JVMs out there. There's lots of ones where you can get commercial support. But take the time to decide which one is going to be best for your workload. So as you're moving to Java or to Spring Boot 3, first thing you have to do is get to Java 17. Find a Java 17 version. You're going to get a ton of benefit on your Spring Boot 2.x workloads, but now you've opened yourself up to upgrade to Spring Boot 3. Now, one of the things that you can do, there's lots of amazing tools out there. Most of the Java 8, Java 11 to Java 17 things can be handled by your IDE, like the Jakarta versus Java X, uh, those things, those are going to be handled pretty easily by a lot of IDEs, uh, but there's also open rewrite. There's open rewrite rules that you can just run against your code base and it'll make it ready for Java 17. So now you've got your workloads that are ready to run Java 17. Now you can run Spring Boot 3. Again, there's open rewrite rules. So we have this kind of journey. Make sure you get to Java 17, then get to Spring Boot 3. And as you get to Spring Boot 3, now you're in the spot where like, hey, there's tons of value, but there's now this other option where I can do the AOT processing and I can get even more value out of that workload. So what does that mean? The AOT processing, ahead of time processing means GraalVM is going to take a look at your code, whatever that is, and it's going to analyze everywhere that it can go. It's going to use up all the processor it can. It can use, it's going to use up all the memory that it has available. And it's going to analyze every branch of code that's in that workload. It's going to throw away all the code that it doesn't need. It's going to take a little bit of the JVM, just the bits that it needs, a little bit of garbage collector, a little bit of the JVM, and it's going to take everything else and it's going to deliver a statically linked binary. So an EXE for Windows. It's going to deliver a statically linked binary that you can run on a smaller footprint. So the JVM, one of the criticisms of the JVM is its footprint, its memory footprint, right? When we're delivering things in containers, typically a two gigabyte container is what you need because as it loads its classes, as it starts up, it takes a little bit of time to start up, but then it's also got the garbage collector, so it kind of evens out. But at a minimum, you're kind of looking at a two gig uh, container going to production. Well, with AOT processing, you're not going to get all the benefits of the JVM. You're going to get a statically linked native image, but you're going to be running on a smaller footprint. It's not bringing all of the JVM. So your image size, it might be bigger because it's got to include the bits from the JVM. So that, that EXE might be larger than the jar file, but the container that you're delivering for production doesn't have to include the JVM. So it'll have the, you know, in case one, it's got the, the operating system, the JVM and your jar file. And let's say that that's 250 megs. After AOT processing, that container is just the operating system and the native image. So that might be 150 megs. So just the container image is going to be smaller. But then what that container needs to run in memory, in case one, it's going to be at a minimum two gigs is what you're taking to production. But in case two, it might be as small as 512 or even 256 megabytes for that image to run in production. So there's trade-offs, right? It takes a little bit longer. The time that it takes for that Graal VM to do the AOT processing, it takes a little bit of time. So instead of a, a five-second recompile, 
Uh, it might be uh, two minutes, depending on your machine, to analyze all the bits, analyze all the branches to determine what that new image is. There's tons of benefit like that. Again, that smaller footprint, that faster startup time, running in production, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing that I can actually now run, like I said, I can run these Spring Boot, Spring Cloud workloads on Raspberry Pis. So that's the AOD processing. So you've kind of, there's all of these steps that, that we're looking at. It's like, hey, I want to get from Spring Boot 2.x to 3.x. I want to get from Java 8 or Java 11 to Java 17. Once you do that, then you have this whole new frontier of looking at these AOT workloads. Go ahead. Does remote debugging work the same against GraalVM Java apps? So it's getting better. It's getting better. So here's, here's the example. We're all working on a project. And this is kind of my use case that I get excited about. We're all working on a project. And we've actually got 100 different apps that we're working on to make up our big A app. Uh, yeah, the, the Chariot E to E or whatever we call it. Our big A app. In order for us to stay current and keep track, especially that we're remote, the idea of sending these tinier, faster startup containers for development. I like to run Kubernetes on my laptop. I like to run Kubernetes locally. If I'm making updates, we're delivering, we're kind of front edge and we're delivering dozens of these releases to production every week. How, does, how do you stay updated with my versions? How do I stay updated with your versions? Delivering those native images, it's a smaller file. So as I mentioned, when I had teammates all over the world, the images that we were delivering, those even just the jars that we were delivering, that became really expensive and really slow. And it was hard for the team that was in Taiwan or Romania, it was hard for them to keep up with the latest and greatest just because of internet. You know, internet's a little bit faster, but now I've got these smaller images. The other thing is, is because they're native images and they start up sub-second I can run them all on something like Kubernetes with Knative, Knative serving. So I can have a hundred different apps, all the latest and greatest because they come down really easy. They're only, you know, 90 megs uh, for the layer. I can get them easily and they're all running, but they're all scaled to zero. So I can have my IDE open. I can have all hundred apps open and I've just got a 16 gig laptop, but I can have hundreds of apps running scale to zero on my laptop and I can be working against latest and greatest. So when I want to do an end-to-end -end test or when I want to verify contracts, I can have everything running. I can do a demo of the whole thing locally. I can see what that experience looks like and things start up and shut down as they need to. That's what I get excited about because I've, I've sat in that seat where I had hundreds of developers spread out over the world and it was difficult to get them to stay on the latest and greatest version. It was difficult, not only then, but I had to give them a VM that was big enough to where they could run all of those 100 apps. Again, if there were two gigabyte containers, even if they were running in a single Tomcat, it was difficult to run that many workloads for every developer. So they're not stomping on toes. We didn't want to give every developer a shared instance, right? We've kind of learned that lesson, even though some people are still doing that. Every developer could have their own instance now on a 16 gig laptop, I can give every developer the latest and greatest of everything. It can be running, it can be downloading the latest versions as it goes and running on my laptop, scale to zero. I can run my IDE, all the apps and Slack all at the same time. <laughs> I was gonna say and Slack, yeah. right? <laughs> and I, I, Here's my giant set of apps that fits in I small. I still memory. have- Then here comes yep, Slack. I still have <laughs> room for Slack. So this is where we're at. Yeah. This is the exciting time. So once you've gotten to that, you're getting all this value. But then I'm just giddy about the developer experience. Now let's think about what that means in production for a customer that has hundreds of apps that maybe translate to thousands of instances of those containers, right? If they're two gig containers today, and we could get them to, let's just say 512 megabyte containers as native images. And that, of course, not all of them are gonna get benefit out of that. So let's just say 25% of those thousand apps that are running production, <clears throat> and let's say 
250 of those are at two gigs, 500 gigs of memory in production. But let's say just that 25%, we could get to AOT. So that's now we're at 512 meg times 250. There's a massive savings, massive savings by just getting some workloads, not all, but taking some workloads into a smaller container with faster startup time that's on the latest and greatest, so you're now more secure and current, getting to that place in production, somebody that makes that decision is gonna get a pat on the back, right? Because that's real value, like dollar value. And as a developer, that's giddy, like developer value. Like I get excited about those types of things. When I started programming, like when I was young, young, high school, middle school, one of the big things we didn't have gigabytes of memory like that was not a thing it was megabytes so if you were building a game it was about how small could you make that game how much could you do in in the tiny amount of memory that you had how interesting could you do things well maybe again maybe that's some of my my baggage where i still get excited clearly about doing enterprise grade patterns enterprise architectures on Raspberry Pis. It's really cool that you can get back now to like thinking about smaller, smaller, less resources to do the same thing because these abstractions are now here and these frameworks are here. Yeah. I, I'm curious what, I want to step back to the developer experience a minute. So when you, you've got your hundred little tiny micro apps, so to speak. Yeah. Um, when people are using those, I'm assuming if there's a change, they pull down the source, rebuild it, or do you, do you also deliver the binaries version as well so to that make the life oh, faster? Great question. So I don't want to build the native images locally. So my, my experience locally, if I'm working on an app, and this goes back to the remote debugging, I don't want to take the time to do a native image process, even though it's like five minutes or two minutes or depending on your laptop. I don't want to wait for that time when I'm in my inner loop development. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do the same way. But then there's the question about like, what happens if it's a bug that only shows up in the, the native image or in production, and it's a different one. Then you still have that native image uh, debugging that is getting better all the time. I, but I don't do a lot of it. So just to be honest, I don't do a lot of it. I know that people are doing it, but as a local loop, inner loop development, I'm doing things the way I normally do. And then as I do my git commit, I've got two branches. I've got one that does the regular, hey, let me deliver a container with the JVM, but I also have another one that says, let me deliver a native image. And I actually do it in two different ways. I deliver a native image for ARM64 mm. and a native image for x86 because some of my teammates are using M1s. They're using ARM64 devices. So I wanna give them an ARM64 image. So I've got this branch, but it doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect my developer experience, but it massively improves their developer experience. Mm -hmm. So as they're pulling down, they're pulling down the native images of the stuff that I'm building. They're still in their inner loop development. They're working with the JVM. They're working with the IDE and they have got all the hooks into the IDE that, that we're used to. We have all those benefits, but then when they hit commit, it's going through the same pipelines, through the same supply chains, doing all the same security validation and it's delivering multiple artifacts because one of the other things is you get all this benefit out of the native image, but ARM64, I don't know if you've heard, is kind of making a move. And we've kind of seen that you can take the same workload running on an x86 without doing the native image. You can take the same workload that's running on x86. If you can run it on ARM64 and you can save, in some cases, 33% off the top. If you're running in the cloud, 33% better. I'll tell you a secret. I like it so much that I'm buying one of the Ampere developer worktops or uh, developer kits that's got, a, you know, I think it's 94 core Ampere that I can run and play with because this is, there's going to be a lot of these types of workloads and it's exciting and I can have that and it's quiet and it uses less resources and I'm going to replace those, those heavier, more expensive devices so yeah this is a, a it's an amazing time and for a long time i feel like developers didn't have to worry as much about 
the application running in production. Yeah. Like, right. hey, if, it, if it's if it's going to be 100 instances, it's 100 instances. That's what we're going to do. We're, we'll scale up and, yeah, no problem. I I noticed a lot more about, oh, we can't buy that thing. I don't want to make the argument for that backing service, even though it might be massively better. Nobody was making the argument to go uh, and buy Oracle, right? Nobody was like, oh, I'll fight that fight because it's going to be better for this use case. People were hesitant to do that. But now in this spring ecosystem, we can get all this massive value without having to ask for any money. And in fact, we can make some of these easy incremental decisions and we can start seeing money come back automatically from our cloud spend, from our infrastructure spend, from our developer experience. We're seeing all this value. And then, you know what? I do want to go and buy Oracle because Oracle is going to be better for this use case. Look at all the money that we just found. Right. You save the money that you would normally spend on the standard scalable infrastructure by not needing as much of it. Finding and yeah. And then these, these things, I don't know if you're aware, but there's kind of been lots of layoffs and things are kind of real, you know, uh, shaky and, and finances are, are crazy and the stock market's jumping around. Like these things matter. And now we're at the point where I'm, I feel like I'm at this level as a developer of, of, the abstractions, all this work has been done for me where my decisions, I can kind of see what it's going to deliver. I can see the effects of my decisions and I don't have to wait six years to see the outcomes of the decisions that I make. I can see them because we're moving faster and we're making changes faster. But now I can also see the budget type, those dollars and cents kind of decisions. I can see how if I'm comparing myself to the team on the other side of the floor or the other organization and I've got 25% of my workloads that are running in production as native images. And I've saved that 75% on, of infrastructure on those. When there's a side by side and you're looking, those types of wins are going to matter wherever you are in whatever your career journey is. Those types of things are going to matter, especially if you care about the company that you work for. Making those decisions, taking the time to exercise a little bit of a test to see, is it worth it to go down this path? Maybe there's lots of workloads where the native image is not going to perform the way that you want it to. You're actually going to lose value, but understand the difference. Not every workload is going to go down that path, but if you can get into the practice of validating and checking and revalidating some of the assumptions that you made, there was that recent uh, Amazon Prime. We're like, oh yeah, we started off doing microservices and, and all this. It was microservices and lambdas. And they're like, oh, yeah, we decided that now we could save a boatload of money by just taking those and turning them into, yeah, monoliths running on the VM. I was actually going to ask about that because thinking about all these tiny little services, it, it reminds me of like your serverless function concept in that you could scale it to zero. Now, I don't know that you would be advocating for scale to zero in production for everything, but there's got to be workloads that are infrequent and because they start so quickly it's probably advantageous compared to a serverless platform for that because it can scale up and in more threads because we're in Java. Yeah. So the scale to zero, the native image stuff is just mm -hmm. one side. So I talked about the JVM workloads. There's another option we call it, it's crack. It's coordinated restore and checkpoints. So what it's doing like the JVM, it says, Hey, I'm going to load all these classes. I'm going to do all the work, that's the bulk of that startup time for a Java workload, for a spring workload. And I'm going to take all that and I'm going to take a snapshot. I'm going to take a checkpoint of, hey, all the classes are loaded and I'm going to grab a snapshot of that class loader of the JVM at that point in time. So the next time I start it, I'm going to say, hey, I want to use that snapshot and I want to start from there. I want to start from that checkpoint. So the next time I start it, I'm starting up in that sub-second startup, but I have all the benefits of the JVM and now I'm running production. So I can scale to zero still. My container size is gonna be a little bit different, but now I've got all the benefits that the JVM provides. Oh, so like that's the other super exciting scale to zero option that we have today. It's like Snapstart. <laughs> yeah, which is which uses crack under the under the covers. Okay. Oh, cool. Yes. So that was delivered by the folks at Azul. Like how amazing is that? And we've now got support for that in Spring Boot 3.1.0.
So we have all of these different options for scale to zero. So whether your workload uh, benefits from being a native image or it needs uh, the benefits of running on the JVM, we've got these scale to zero options that are just, <laughs> you see the goosebumps? It's just exciting. <laughs> it's an exciting time to be a Java developer and the spring team has just made it even that much more exciting going forward. I wrote a blog post uh, recently, a couple of days ago, that was like, uh, you may have moved on, but Java is just getting better and better, basically. It does. It does. It is. And Spring is going along with it, which is really cool. So you've got all these really people have thought about how to make production and development experiences better over time. And they haven't stopped doing that. But you might have jumped off of Java. This is for everyone watching. You may have jumped off of Java at like eight. It's, it's even better... And you have a lot more options today than you used to yes. for programming in Java and running. And especially if, you've, if you haven't learned Spring and you're on Java, you should learn Spring because <laughs> it is the thing that for any kind of servers, it's, it's just... I'm 100% biased. It. I'm totally biased. Oh, I know, but I love it too. I've loved it ever <laughs> since I've used it. So. Yep. But it's a good point. Like, you know, just going through all this stuff and then I fired up a Spring Boot 3 server on top of the Java 20 training class I was running. I'm like, ha everything's there. Yep. You know, you don't have to get a license for everything. You don't have to, you know, get eval copies. It's all open source and it's still great and yep. and getting better and better. And production ready. So it's yeah, not right. like, it's not open source that, oh, you got to go and buy an upgrade in order for it to be production. No, you get all the things, yeah. the Spring Framework, Spring Boot, Spring Cloud, all the things, Spring Data, all those things are production grade. There is no like cap and, oh, you don't get these features until you pay for it. Like it's, Everything is out there, and it's absolutely mind-blowing that that's the way that things are operating. There's been a lot of, you know, taking a step back. There's a lot of open-source projects that, yeah, they got to figure out a way to make money. And how are we going to make money? Yeah, and the Spring Team, I think it really started off, and they were just training people. That was kind of the way that it started. It was like, hey, we're going to show you some shortcuts and do the training, right? And yeah. that's how they made their money. Right. I don't know how they make money today. For a little tiny bit of time, they were doing the Spring DM server. Yeah. Uh, that, remember the OSGI server? And they were tr yep. there was a commercial venture there. I'm so glad that when they stopped doing that, they didn't just implode. Because yep. a lot of companies, that would have killed them. Yep. But VMware purchased them and said, we believe in you, keep going. Which is kind of, yeah. it's a very rare thing to see that they keep them open source like that. Certainly there's the enterprise support licenses and stuff like that. That certainly is required for larger companies. But you can still develop in Spring like you could in 2005, go get it, go play with it, work with it. You yep. got everything everybody else does, which is just fantastic. Where do we go? Um, where's the best place to go to look at more? I mean, obviously YouTube, but do you have a good like uh, set of resources that we can go to that you recommend to see for more of your writing and your, your colleagues? Yeah, so spring.io. Of course. Spring.io right? yeah. is where everything starts. Um, I also run the spring office hours, which will happen later mm -hmm. today. Uh, and this is a thing that it's it's kind of similar to this where we just kind of talk live uh, we'll have a topic that we're going to talk about we like to talk about like the latest releases and what's coming down the pipe from the spring team but we also kind of open it up to questions simon who showed up today he's one of our regulars where it's just like i wish you know back when i was you know a developer and i was delivering spring to production uh, i wished that i had better access the spring team and the spring developer advocates they were amazing they made me feel like i had a extended team is what i like to say i might get emotional here but uh <laughs> they really made me feel like i had an extended team because when they answered a, an issue on github it it touched me like it, it made me feel like i was connected to them but i always i, I wish i had more uh, and this spring office hours is kind of that more i would have loved to have something like spring office hours that was you know weekly where i could go in and like oh i'm stuck on this i just grabbed the latest version of uh, spring data redis and i ran into this issue can you help me i wish that i had and sometimes it's not us the the hosts that answer it sometimes it's people like simon that have already oh i already ran into that and, they, and he's answering it in the chat during the session so we've got this nice little community similar to this one where we've got spring developers that are excited about it and and i call them spring developer advocates because typically the people that are showing up they're also going back to their organizations and they're kind of sharing like hey i figured it out and they're getting people excited about it so it's a wonderful experience but that part of it that part of like hey we've got this chance and sometimes people straggle in but pretty much every week somebody says how do i learn more about spring 
Well, now we've got Spring.Academy. So Spring.io is kind of our default. That's where all the documentation, there's guides, there's tutorials, there's blogs about all the latest releases. But Spring.Academy is a resource where you can go and get, it's like online training and it has a, a course. It's got a flow for you to go and learn the fundamentals. And it also has a, a paid option where you can go in and say, hey, I want a year's worth of this. And at the end, I want to take a test. And you can get certified in spring. So if you know, uh, not that long ago, spring certifications were kind of expensive. And it was almost, you know, if you wanted to do it at scale, you had 10 people on your team. That became a real big budget item. But now I, I want to say it's like $2.99 or something. It's, it's affordable. So for teams of size 10 to 100, it's affordable. And it's easy to do. Spring.academy is amazing. So... Yeah, Very if you're cool. looking to learn more about Spring, Spring.io and Spring.academy are the main resources that I'd point you towards. Fantastic. Well, Deshaun, thank you so much for being with us today. We really enjoyed it. This has been fun. I, you know, I, I get excited. And I'm still, I'm still kind of jazzed about the experience that I had at Philadelphia ETE. Uh, we I made a lot of connections. Yeah. I, I made yeah. a lot of connections. And I'm still having conversations that have started uh, at that conference so yeah every I time some... i hear you i get 10 times more excited i'm like what else can this guy talk about because it gets me excited <laughs> that that's great it. speaker so, yeah I you're hope... a good motivator well thank you i hope that yeah. we can do this again uh and yeah we're lucky to be connected but again it's the same there's kind of a community you know we've got people that have joined us for the show like it's something special about the spring community and i include you guys in that is like it's a friendly place it's a place for you to come and learn and hopefully somebody learned something from this episode uh but it's always fun it's always fun to talk about and sometimes i always talk about like the the alt tab thing you didn't learn that from reading the documentation somebody was sitting next to you you saw them do it on the screen you're like whoa yeah what was that <laughs> right like that's something that has yeah been spread across the world but nobody read the documentation to figure that out it was somebody was sitting next to them and they saw it happen and like how did you do that and then you just kind of picked it up and and that's someplace sometimes that's how people learn so that's another part mm -hmm. of uh, the spring office hours and it's another reason why shows like this are super valuable sometimes you don't know what you don't know and it's great to oh know. yeah tell me yeah. about it yeah absolutely all right man thank you so much thank you guys for having me i really thank appreciate you. it it was fun I hope to do it Thanks again. Yep, absolutely. Right. Take Thanks. Care. Take care. See ya. Mm -hmm.